Ty Tandrew Horsfield here. Welcome to The Messy Middle and welcome to a new year. 2020 was what it was and has pretty much been dissected to death. So as we embark on this new year, I wanted to start by saying thank you to you for tuning into the podcast over the past year. I found it a real privilege to host and have meaningful conversations with the extraordinary people who have been guests on the show each one in their own way, offering some practical advice and ideas about how you can advance your career, company and life. And I wanted to kickstart this year by sharing my conversation with businesswoman and philanthropist, Susan Alberti. Susan is a powerful woman who's achieved a significant level of success in her life. And while she's widely known for her passion and service to the Western Bulldogs Football Club, and for being the catalyst for the formation of the AFLW competition, Susan's also worked tirelessly as a philanthropist, fundraiser and advocate, raising tens of millions of dollars to cure the disease that tragically took her daughter's life. And in this conversation, we talk about the origins of her success, how to develop a reputation for results, and the lessons that she's learned in striving to make a positive contribution to the many organisations where she has given her time and her talent. I hope you enjoy this conversation with one of Australia's preeminent businesswomen and philanthropists, Susan Alberti. Susan, welcome to The Messy Middle. It's it's such a privilege to have you because I've been an admirer, of, obviously from a distance, but of your work, your leadership and the legacy that I think that you're building within your own life. So I'm just thrilled and it's a real pleasure to be able to talk with you. So thanks for making the time. Thank you, Andrew. I'm truly honoured. I think that we can fall into the false belief, you know, that successful people are just born that way. And I wondered if you could start by sharing the early stages of your career or building your career and the construction business that you started with your husband, Angelo? Well, I was born in Bensdale, Victoria, um, and at a very early age, my parents came to Melbourne. And then, of course, I was working at the age of 14. I had my first part-time job at 14, one, because I wanted to work, and two, because I wanted to contribute to the family household because it was tough going with mum and dad just after the war and it was my way of giving back. So I was working at 14. So I had a really good understanding what work was all about and what hard work was all about. And then, of course, um, I married quite young. I was in my early 20s and I married a migrant to this country. And, of course, he had nothing when he arrived in Australia at the age of 19 and I had nothing. So we had a very good start. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to, our, to our marriage and it, to our business. Um, and um, But he was an ambitious man, uh, Angelo, being the migrant from northern Italy. And I was ambitious too. As I said, I was working from the age of 14, albeit part-time jobs. Angelo being the migrant, he wanted to really get on. He had the opportunity to come to this country. He was determined to be successful. I was determined to be successful. And I knew with hard work, um, I, I could do that. And, of course, I married a man who had similar, a similar outlook on life. So we made a formidable pair. We both wanted to be successful. So I guess it was about hard work and wanting to be successful. And I guess the rest of it came, came along with the journey for us, the success, which then um, 
led us into all sorts of businesses and, again, more success. We had failure too. Uh, it wasn't all success. We learned um, what we were good at and what we weren't so good at. We had buildings, swimming pool, plastics. We had a couple of businesses which we were not good at and we found that we needed to stick to what we knew best. And by doing that, we were very successful. So sticking to what we knew best, that was really important. Was that just based on the metric of the business was being successful or were there? did you find about how you approached each of those businesses in terms of my father would say whether you got up and said, good morning, God, or God, it's morning? Well, everything I did, I did enjoy. Jumping out of bed for me was it's not about work. It's about striving. Um, I was, I've always been a visionary and a, I guess you could say a dreamer. I always had a five-year plan. Uh, these days I have three because I'll be lucky. Hopefully three years I can still have a plan. But in those younger days I had a five-year plan, all the things that I wanted to do and achieve by the time I was 30, and I did just about all of them. Uh, I had my house or have our house paid for completely mortgage-free, which we did by the time I was 28. So we had goals, and that's what mm. helped a lot in our business for having goals and reaching those goals, and, and, and to us that was what it was all about. Uh, they're like stepping stones, and as we achieve them, we create more um, challenges for ourselves. To us it was, um, it, was, it was like a continuing challenge, but we loved what we were doing. We just enjoyed the challenge. We enjoyed the work. And you obviously worked hard during that period and built your success, but that all, all changed for you personally on one Sunday morning in 1995. Yes, um, Angela unfortunately was killed by a drug-affected driver left on the side of the road and um, that man left the scene of the accident and left Angelo to die. He was admitted to intensive care. He was in intensive care for three weeks and I had to make a dreadful, difficult decision to turn off his equipment because there was just no... He just was not going to come out of it. And I had this huge business to run. I had 300 staff. And I had another 100 staff with our other businesses. So I had 400 people looking to me for leadership and their livelihoods. And I really had to make up my mind very quickly what I was going to do, sell the business and walk away or keep going. But I kept going. And um, I learned very much a very hard lesson being a woman in a man's world. But fortunately, I'd been in a man's world, not at the top, not as the CEO, with my husband for a very, very long time. Having to deal with men was not that difficult for me because that's what I'd been doing. And I was it was a very rare, very, very rare to have a woman with a builder's licence. In fact, I think arguably I was probably the first woman in Victoria to have a building licence. But I found the men good to work with, good to deal with, um, they were very um, good. They were. Uh, I have no complaints whatsoever. Is that a lot about your style and skills, Susan, as much as it was about them and the industry at the time, do you think? I give respect to everyone, male or female, and I expect it in return. But the one thing I didn't do was I didn't change who I was. I didn't want to become one of the blokes, one of the boys. I'm still a woman. I'm still a, a very a very particular about how I dress and how I conduct myself and how I run my business. I, I'm very respectful of everybody. And I guess that just 
flowed on throughout my businesses and the men were incredibly respectful, uh, very obliging. Mm. I'm a very strong character. I, um, I work hard. I show example. I treat my staff very well. They're like family to me. So it was just automatic for me after Angelo died just to continue in that fashion. And I had a very healthy and good relationship with all the people who worked for me and my companies. I'm just wondering, I mean, from again, from a distance, Susan, you seem to be so um, consistent in the way that whether you're sitting in the, the boardroom at, uh, at an organisation or you're sitting with the, the Bulldogs cheer squad on a Saturday, that, that, that we see you and you mentioned before that that's something you pride yourself on. What's the secret to to not only finding yourself but being yourself as a leader? Because I think a lot of people struggle with that. Well, I would hope that I show humility. Uh, the reason why the cheer squad to me were very important, uh, they're the salt of the earth, those people. If you don't have a cheer squad, you don't really have a football team or a football club. And I cut my teeth on the cheer squad when I was a little girl. I've accepted challenges all my life because I've come from a very challenging life, I guess you could say, from when I was a child. I grew up in housing commission. I grew up with a father who was a policeman and a mum a stay-at-home mum. But I was taught to be respectful, to be honest, to be kind, to be humble. All of those things I was taught as a child by my good parents. I didn't have money. I didn't have the material things that most kids had. But I had uh, great parents. And then, of course, it followed on at my school. The teachers, my teachers at primary and secondary, taught me about humility, giving back, being kind, being gentle. And I learned all of that from school as well as my parents. So I just flowed on into the boardroom to accept people for who they are, their gender, this, whatever, 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 whoever they are. I learned to accept to be accepting. I didn't have to agree with it, Mm -hmm. and I agree with lots of things. But I accepted it, just like I hope they accept me for who I am. So in the boardroom, I learned that I was there for a particular reason, to give as much as I could to that organisation, to make a difference. And when I did leave the organisation, it was in a better place than when I joined it. And I'll continue to do that so long as I can make a difference. I'm not there for the kudos. I mean, I've got most things in my life. I've got my health, which is very important. So I just enjoy what I do and I've always enjoyed making a difference and I would hope that I have left a legacy in all those organisations that I've been involved in the past and hopefully in the future. I think it's absolutely clear uh, that you've you have, and I'm sure I'm sure more sure you're familiar with the John Kennedy halftime "Don't Think, Do" speech in the I think it was a 1975 Grand Final from memory. What a man! Mm. I just wondered from from what you've just explained, Susan, and and also in your experience personally, what are the determining factors in your experience from those who espouse and those who execute? Are there differences that you've noticed? I've found a lot of young women come to me for advice about their future. You go and you work hard and you will be recognised for what you've done. It's not about your CV. It's about then when you go back and work hard, you'll be seen, you'll be acknowledged, and then you'll have the credibility and the experience to offer those talents to the those boards that you want to sit on. 
young women want things too quickly. They want it all straight away. It doesn't work like that. You've got to work your way up the ladder, which is what I did. I never, ever uh, went after any positions. I was invited. So all my experiences along the way has made, has made me smarter and more determined, and that's what I say to young women, um, particularly young women, go and learn, go and experience things. And when you've done that, you will then be so well-equipped to be able to offer your talents to the various boards or various organisations. Go and get some experience with not-for-profit. It's amazing what you can learn. And surround mm-hmm. yourself with people smarter than you. I've done that throughout my whole life. And now I'm in my 70s. I still do that. I've learned so much from other people far smarter than me. So to young women, surround yourself with people that are far smarter than you. And I really like what what you're highlighting there for people listening, Susan, around that sometimes we can get so far ahead in the planning that we forget to do the work that's right in front of us and where we can have most of an impact and build that reputation that allows those other opportunities to come. Where does your drive for that demanding work come from? It's been throughout my whole life. I've been a driven person and I had a lot of heartache along the way with death, sickness, death, Uh, my daughter dying on an aeroplane, bringing her home to give her my kidney and then finishing up myself in intensive care. I said, if I get another chance, another crack at life, I'm going to change my attitude because I was so busy looking after everybody else and their well-being and their, you know, just staff always looking to me for leadership and and on the outside, yes, I was strong and all of the above, but I was struggling personally. I was not eating well. I was not uh, looking after myself, too busy looking after everybody else. If I get another crack at life, I'm going to change my life. So I changed my life completely. Uh, lost a hell of a lot of weight got fitter, healthier. I've never been happier. I've never been healthier. And I think now I'm an even better leader than I was before. I am resilient, but I'm determined. I'm determined to never give up. And when you've faced what I've faced, the sickness I had, the sicknesses, not just one thing, uh, you do get a chance to reevaluate your life. You said uh, that you thought you were a good leader, but after that you became an even better leader. What what was the difference? What changes did you notice in yourself? Oh, ask my husband. I had energy to burn. <laughs> he said to me, he'd stand in one spot and I'd zip, zip, zip around the place. He said, I he said, I know you'll come back eventually if I just stand here, but I've got so much <laughs> more, so much more energy. I'm a happy. I'm a nicer person to be around. Uh, I know that. Um, I'm far more engaging, not, not that I wasn't really engaging before, but I'm much, much more engaging, I'm much more tolerant uh, than I thought that I, I think that I was before. I'm just all round happier. Um, yeah. And I don't worry about the silly little things. You know, just move on. Things annoy you and you, you get, don't get bogged down in stupid little things. Worry about the tough stuff if you've got to worry about anything, you know. And just changing tack slightly in terms of um, you're you're probably widely regarded as the patron saint of the Western Bulldogs in a way of the, the footy club, obviously with your as you shared your uh, lifelong really um, association with the footy club. Can you take us back to the grand final in 2016? Oh, what that was like? That was the most remarkable day. Um, 
because I didn't want anybody drinking and driving and um, got to the ground and I wanted to sit where the real people sit out in the sands. I didn't want to go in a box. I spent many, many days in a box, you know, going throughout the year into a corporate box. That's fun and the food's good, but I don't go for the food. I go for the football. Yes. So up the race, there was Peter Gordon just on his own. And I sat and I stood next to him or about 16 minutes into the last quarter and I'm hitting him on the back and I said, Peter, we're going to win this. We're going to win it. And then the roar of the crowd. I've never heard such noise from the Bulldog supporters in my life and my heart was pounding. If I was going to have a heart attack, it was going to be then. Now, (laughs) Peter Gordon, he was so red in the face, I thought he'd explode. He was so excited. The first thing I wanted to do was go to the cheer squad. Now, they are the salt of the earth. That's what I joined when I was a little girl. I went over there and they were crying and I was crying. And then I went back to the players after I cheered and the, the cheer squad and waved to them and threw them kisses because they meant a lot to me. I don't know, I meant yes. a lot to them. And then I saw Ruffy. He's a giant of a man. And he came over to me and he, said, and he went to pick me up. And I said, uh, Ruffy, a few years ago I'd break your back if you did this. He picked me up and whizzed me around and gently put me down. He said, well, did you have a nice afternoon? Well, I was in tears, absolute tears, mm. because I knew the journey I'd been on because I know I'd played a very large part in helping the dogs get to that grand final. Uh, I know that all the hard work by a lot of people, and I knew then again that the part I'd played had been a significant contribution to the Bulldogs winning that grand final. I have never had a weekend like that in my life before, and I never will. It was one of the happiest days of my life. Uh, it was something I'll take to my grave. It's something so special. So there you want to know what it was like. Well, it was wonderful. Yeah, and thoroughly well deserved for for you as well as the whole the whole club. It um I think that's that's the story that uh, that a lot of people connected with. And I wanted to ask you. I mean, sixty two years is a long time to be waiting, as you know more than more than most. What sustains the club culture and the staunch supporters to stay the course and and keep the faith during you know some of those years of disappointing results? I think it's the culture of the club. It is very family-minded. I mean, you know, I'd see families coming to the club and following the Bulldogs. It's ingrained in them in the west of Melbourne. You know, it's the fastest-growing area in the whole of Australia, the west of Melbourne. You would have thought there'd be more supporters, but those that did support the club and those that were members, it was ingrained in them, you know, that they never, ever, ever gave up. They were always there, come hell or high water. They were there. They never took no for an answer. And that's what I loved most of all about those supporters. They hung in there. They never, ever gave up, albeit we weren't the rich club. We were not the higher membership, but those Mm. who were there were steadfast in their belief in the club, including yours truly. You've played a significant role on bringing uh, the national AFLW competition into being, and can you just educate the listeners as to what that process has involved because you've been there from, from the start and have um, obviously seen it through to success. I was at a luncheon. I was invited to go and speak at the um, St Kilda um, Saints. Uh, it was a women's team down at St Kilda uh, to speak at a luncheon about my life and everything and why I played footy and 
why I did it. And I walked into a room, a lot of women. Now, and when I go to places, I like to find out what it's really all about. And I spoke to a number of the committee and they were desperate. They're on their knees, ready to fold. Women's football is about to fold, full stop. Yeah. Now, here I am in a position when I was a little girl, I wanted to make a difference for women in football because I was denied the opportunity when I was 15. I had to retire and I was a very good footballer. I know I'm very modest, aren't I? But I was. I would have made yeah. a very good footballer. I would have probably been an elite footballer because that's what I wanted to do, but I couldn't. So I thought, now here I am in a position financially, I truly can make a difference. So I'd spoken and I said, and there's one thing else, one thing I really want to do here today, I want to give you a check for X so you can get on the road and get this organisation moving. Well, I have never been in a room before where every single person burst into tears, including myself, mm. because this truly made a difference to women in football, women in sport, which meant that enabled them to get a member of staff to get the show on the road. And then I went to my own board at the Western Bulldogs and I offered with part of my sponsorship to sponsor a women's team because I wanted to see a Western Bulldogs team. And I sponsored them for three years to put the team on the, on the, uh, on, on, on the oval. And Melbourne similarly did some, they got a sponsor for them. We had great mm -hmm. from men as well, not just the women. We had the exhibition match, the CEO of the AFL, the chairman of the AFL turned up and they were convinced this was a winner. We've had, and Gil McLaughlin, I give him absolute credit. And I remember going and seeing him and asking him to come to a breakfast to um, advertise women in uh, playing AFLW. And I thought, yes, he'll just ignore me. It was a few days before Christmas. He said, what do you need? I'll bring my team in, marketing, advertising, whatever. And yep. I thought, yes, 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 he says yes, but he's not going to do it. He did everything I asked for. And the next year... We launched the competition, he went out on a limb, and as I say, the rest is history. And now we have almost, in fact, we may have even hit it, 600,000 young women playing our game. And it's not because they want to be superior to women. They just want to play the game because they love AFL football. I wanted to ask you in, in terms of what you're explaining, with the AFLW competition as, as well as other things that you've mentioned, in those legacy types of uh passions and, and purposes that you've pursued, how do you sustain the energy and effort for those long-term things when life consistently tries to reinforce that quick result and instant gratification? Yeah. Unfortunately, today it is about um, instant gratification, but I'm a very patient person. I, I remember I told you back in those early days I had a five-year plan <clears throat> and I stuck to that plan. I was very strict with myself. And now I have a three-year plan because of my age in life. And I'm a very patient and tolerant person. I know that it won't happen overnight. I know I've got to work at it like I've done everything in my life. I've worked at it and it hasn't happened straight away. And I think it's, to me, it's not instant. It never has been about instant gratification. I had goals right throughout my life. Goals, one day, women in football. Goals, one day, well, I guess it was a dream more than a, necessarily a goal win an AFL premiership, but I had a I had a goal I was going to work towards. Uh, that was not in my five-year plan, by the way. <laughs> no, um, in, my business, in my business life, everything was about a five-year plan. 
what I wanted to do, what I wanted to achieve. Maybe some people are very lucky. Maybe it's given to them. I didn't have it given to me. I had to work for it. Yes. I had to aim, aim the whole time, work towards it all the time. And you've just mentioned about two of those really significant goals that in my research I, I found out uh, in terms of the, the Bulldogs Premiership, the, the AFL competition uh, for women. And the third, which you have referenced a little bit through the conversation, is about finding a cure for type 1 diabetes. And I wondered whether you could share your experience with Danielle that, that has led a little bit to that uh, pursuit for you and that passion for you and just share where, what you're doing now, where you're up to now with that. Well, it started about in 1981 when my daughter was diagnosed at the age of 12. She'd be 51 if she was alive this year. Um, And I'm a person that likes results. And if I can get behind something and help find a cure, I knew we had to get some big dollars. So we became affiliated in the United States with international affiliates all around the world as a consequence. And then millions of dollars started to come into the country from the United States um, and more and more men and women became interested in research. So we've invested hundreds of millions of dollars now into diabetes research. But along the way, uh, unfortunately, my daughter got sick. Um, she lost, started to lose her eyesight. Then her kidneys failed. And then, of course, Danielle died as a result of kidney failure and a massive heart attack on a Qantas plane. I was bringing her home to Australia to give her my kidney, but realising that nine months later I was diagnosed with cancer. So I don't think I would have been able to give her that kidney because, I, well, it wouldn't have been possible. Mm. So whilst I'd been on that journey since she was 12, I was determined more than ever to help find a cure for type 1 diabetes. So I came back to Australia with this and I decided to go to the Australian government and it was Tony Abbott at the time who was the health minister. And I remember saying to him, I said, Tony, if I give X... <coughs> Would you match? Well, he got it. As I said, you don't have to like him. No, they don't have to like him, but he got it. He understood what I was on about. So the Australian government came in with about $32 million, and I've given many millions over the years to medical research. Uh, I know it's contributed to, to this day to innovation into the world of diabetes research is now making a huge difference to children now who have got type 1 diabetes, whether it be glucose monitoring or pumps, uh, islet transplantation. Parents can now go to sleep at night, not worrying about their child, not waking up because they've now got monitors at night, uh, which is fantastic, which an alarm will go off, alert the parents that they're going, their child is going too low. They didn't have that when my daughter was diagnosed. We didn't have pens. We didn't have pumps. I mean, we didn't have glucose testing machines. It's just the advancements of technology is just incredible and it continues to this day. So, again, I'm just as determined about helping to find a cure. I couldn't do it for my own child. There's no reason why I can't do it for others and make a difference. Can you share where this drive for being a champion of positive change comes from and and what you're up to now? Well, there's something a lot of people don't know that I'm involved with, but I'm patron of Tradeswomen Australia. You may ask me why. Well, back in the 60s, uh, we only had men working in the building industry. And again, I couldn't understand why there were no women, but I just got on with the job and just, you know, managed to work with men. 
And, of course, when my husband died um, and I had to um, go back and get my or go and get my licence, I finished up in the um, finished up in the classroom being the only woman and then I then had to go and learn all the trades. I'm now patron of Tradeswomen Australia. And I remember back in the 80s, uh, if you didn't get a degree from university, you were a failure. But I thought, why is it women can't be in the trades and they can have a damn good career? In fact, they can have their own business. And then I learned that it's been the same figure for the last, well, it's been put out for the last 25 years, that only 2% of women are in trades. And there are so many opportunities out there for women who could go into trades and have a damn good career. So why not consider getting involved in a trade? I think at school when you go and see the counsellor, it's not one of those things that want, they want to talk about because, oh, well, you know, university is the be-all, end-all. No, it's not. I didn't go to university. Mm. I wasn't given an opportunity to go to university. My opportunity was to get out and work and to work hard. I've done reasonably yeah. well during that time. So I say consider a trade. It, there's plenty of work out there. We could go on for probably another two hours with all of the areas of life that you, you've touched. I know your own foundation, which we'll include a link to in the show notes, has, has raised over tens of millions of dollars for diabetes research. And um, we'll include a, a link in the show notes so if people are listening have a desire to do something else and want to help that they'll have a link to be able to to do that um, in the show notes. Um, I wanted to ask a final question before we wrap up and and that is a, a quote that I read that uh, has been attributed to you, whether rightfully or so or, or not, but uh, talking about uh, why you like uh, an idol of yours, Tony Liberatore, where you said that I like him because he's tough and I'm tough. And I just wanted to know, how do you be tough but sustain such an impeccable reputation? Do you know, the reason why I love Tony Liberatore is because no one wanted him. Because they said he wasn't big enough, he wasn't tall enough, he couldn't run fast. I couldn't run fast, but geez, I could tackle. And he won all three medals. He won the thirds, the seconds, and of course the Brownlow. No other player in history has done that. It was because of his determination and the belief that he could be the best he could possibly be, and that's what I try really hard, to be the best I possibly can. I don't have all the skills. I don't have all the intelligence that some other people may have and the skills in life. But because it's been a tough journey for me, I'm determined to be the best I possibly can, just like Tony. Yeah. What a, what a great response and a perfect way to finish our conversation, Susan. Thank you so much for such an interesting and insightful conversation. We've only had an hour or so, but you've provided such a, a glimpse of, you know, why you were named in the Herald Sun's top 20 most influential women in sport, but equally shown um, why your influence and impact is certainly uh, extends well beyond the boundaries of sport. So... Thank you for your time, your insight, and and lots of nuggets of wisdom in there for listeners who are looking to to advance themselves and make a positive contribution to to latch onto and do something with. So thank you so much. Thank you. Just a couple of things before we wrap up. 
If you enjoyed this episode and think listening to more interesting and insightful conversations like this one is a good investment of your time, please subscribe by clicking on your preferred podcasting platform at andrewhorsefield.com forward slash podcast. And if you'd like to receive a monthly email from me with insider content, recommended reading and free events that I regularly run to help you advance people and performance, then sign up for content that's been curated specifically for curious minds like yours at andrewhorsefield.com free stuff. Thanks for listening.